Welcome to the Green Edge Podcast with Michael Cross and me, Fraser Harper. This is our weekly update for the week ending 16th of June 2023. The principles and ideas underlying just transitions can be seen throughout history, more recent history at least. Labour movements and worker rights in the late 19th century and early 20th centuries, the civil rights movement in the US during the 50s and 60s, transitions from colonial rule to self-governance in Africa and Asia, and most recently, all the letters, numbers and mathematical symbols under the 2SLGBTQQIA plus rainbow. But the actual term just transition has gained prominence and its own two-letter acronym over the last few years in the context of addressing climate change and sustainability. Initially championed by the unions, particularly in industries such as coal mining and manufacturing, where workers were experiencing job losses and economic dislocation due to shifts in technology, market dynamics and environmental regulations, JT gained further visibility in the early 1990s and was included in the preamble to the Kyoto Protocol in 1997, which recognized the importance of minimizing adverse social, economic and environmental impacts on other parties, especially developing countries, and in particular, those identified by the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change as being particularly vulnerable. Since then, JT has evolved and expanded to encompass broader considerations of social equity, environmental justice and sustainable development and has been embraced by governments, international organisations and civil society as a framework for ensuring that the transition to a low carbon economy is equitable and leaves no one behind. As usual, sharing my small corner of what some might consider to be the unfashionable Western spiral of the cyber galaxy is Dr. Michael Cross. And Michael, the just transition is way too big a topic to cover in the single post we wrote this week. It is. And I think other people struggle to contain it in the, even in their own documents. If you go into the OECD set of documents on this or the ILO, they all have their own take. But fundamentally, it is about justice in terms of entry and therefore open to all. And I think that's been highlighted that in many parts of the country where you're moving from energy intensive to renewable based sources of power, that there are possible barriers. So almost preclusion from certain groupings entering the labour market. There's also, as you raised, Fraser, about the impacted groups, be it in actual extraction of energy, i.e. coal or extraction for oil and gas being impacted and industries like cement and steel. Now, I don't see this as that much different than what we saw probably in the 1950s and then right through to the early 1980s, where we saw manufacturing going through quite significant restructuring. And across Europe, we had major programs to assist the coal industry, the textiles industry, and certainly the steel industry. These really based on shipbuilding would be in there as well, where we saw huge adjustments. Now, if we were to use them as a bit of a benchmark and comparator, I would argue, and I was involved in two of them up in the northeast in the steel industry and the chemical industry, we ameliorated the worst effects by having large redundancy programs. But I don't see progressive plans, apart from one or two, and we'll come on to that with the North Sea, much happening across much of the UK, let alone Europe. I think they probably are working on the basis that displacement 
will also create opportunities as new entries come in for new businesses or new energy sources and those people will be sucked into employment because generally there's a fairly high degree of skill transferability. If those jobs are attractive to people wanting to make the transfer because of their employment conditions or the level of pay is another matter and certainly I think people in the North Sea have pointed to quite significant differences between the terms and conditions of being on a rig to actually helping with offshore wind. Now, in England, just transition is obviously implicit in the levelling up agenda, but there has been some criticism directed at Michael Gove and his levelling uppers. For example, when the levelling up white paper was published last year, the think tank Policy Connect wrote that while brief parts of the paper were dedicated to the net zero transition, and I quote, when it comes to the details of how exactly the government aims to level up the UK to challenge and change unfairness, analysis of the green transition is missing. In the meantime, though, Scotland seems to be flying the JT flag. There's been a Just Transition Commission in Scotland for a few years now, and we can read from the Commission's last published minutes from its meeting in January that it made a strategic review of the country's draft energy strategy and Just Transition plan, which was published the same month. Now, that plan sets out a key ambition to maintain or increase employment in Scotland's energy production sector against a decline in North Sea production. But I guess you've got to ask whether there's going to be a decline at all in the North Sea, given the events around Energy Security Day back at the end of March, or whether it might just be a case of more and more people piling into the energy sector. Well, I think if you take North Sea for oil and gas, yes, there will be a decline because all oil fields and gas fields do decline at some point. It's more about the rate. And will they be allowed to expand with new licensing? And there's obviously some clear tensions there. But overall, because of the nature of exploiting oil and gas and building offshore wind in particular, and let's not forget carbon capture and storage and also hydrogen, which also features in Aberdeen area. These are large-scale capital programs which take many years to come to fruition. So they are planned events over six or seven years in many cases. So that allows you to have a planned process for the workforce, for skill development, and for individuals to think through their careers. These are not sudden dramatic changes. And I think that makes it easier and less challenging to actually have a more just transition. I think where you get a bigger jolt is where whole-scale industries might actually significantly just decline and close to disappearing. And I think people are pointing to where some parts of automobile manufacturing, there is a real threat where hundreds of thousands of jobs could be hit across the UK unless some major changes happen. So that could be more critical than the energy sector then? I think so, yes. Okay. Now, in this week's post, we also take a look at the recent bilateral agreement between Germany and India for the immigration of skilled solar PV technicians trained under India's solar training program, which is called Surya Mitra. Now, just this week, the German Solar Industry Federation, BSW, has said that solar power last year already meets something like one-eighth of the country's power needs and that there could be something like 10 gigawatts of new solar added this year up from 7.4 gigawatts in 2022. And the country has just seen its 3 millionth solar power system go online. Michael, that's a lot of solar and presumably a lot of Indian technicians heading to Germany in the not too distant future. Potentially so. When you look at the numbers for Germany, it's quite intriguing. The German solar industry, and I'm including manufacturing and installation there, employs the best part of 90,000 people. Their own industry figures suggest they'll be past 200,000 in the next three or four years because of the rate of growth. And obviously some of that is driven by export. 
so you can well see why they need to actually expand. Now, to put that in context against the UK, depending where you take your figures from, the UK solar industry employs somewhere between five and a half thousand and potentially a little beyond 20 plus thousand. So it's relatively small, more the size of the Italian solar industry. Now, we lack significant manufacturing activity. The American industry is very large, and they certainly see solar manufacturing being a huge part of that. The other point I'd make is that this is not recent rapid growth for the Germans. Their solar manufacturing goes back nearly 50 years. And so they've had a base starting back in the mid-70s, and that grew strongly in the 90s to what we see today. So they've got some real expertise around material science and the construction and making of the modules and elements that make up solar panels. So they've got a complete package going on there. A bit like they have for the offshore wind, as do the Danes or the Spaniards. And a reminder that you can find this week's post, just a few transitional thoughts on greenedge.substack.com. And you can also find this podcast on all the major streaming platforms, including Apple, Google and Amazon. Now, Michael, we've got some news this week from our friends at IEMA. Yes, an interesting development between IEMA and Pearson with the creation of an extended project qualification, which is something that post-16 students can do largely at school alongside their A-levels or T-levels. And it is something which gives them practical experience of something that shows they can work in teams and do something significant relevant to what's happening on the general sustainability world. And I think that's a positive move. It helps promote the whole nature of sustainability at schools as well. And also an interesting survey from Nesta. Yes, Nesta teamed up with their colleagues at the Behavioural Insights team, and they surveyed 4,000 people just leaving education, be it at A-level, T-level or university, and also 4,000 people in work and asking their views as regards green jobs, green careers, green skills. What came out, I think, to me was a lack of understanding and a lack of information to provide what does this really mean in terms of a green career. And the interest was really, really peaked with people if they could see salaries being relevant and higher than what they might be poking their noses towards. Not unpredictable, not surprising, but I think it's very much early days, but is a pointer to people who are actively seeking to recruit either directly into their own workforce or into education programs and promoting careers in the green sectors. There's a surprise, working for money and not for love like we do. But we might change. And finally, also a little bit of news coming up soon from the Green Edge. Yes, we've recently signed a contract with City and Guilds to work them in a first phase of work over the next eight months, helping them work through the issues in relation to the green economy and green sectors and the vast range of training programmes and qualifications that they provide for many workforces across the world. Watch this space. We'll be talking about that soon and asking for people's help. Thank you for listening to this Green Edge podcast. This podcast series accompanies the Green Edge newsletter to which you can subscribe at greenedge.substack.com. The Green Edge is produced by Blue Mirror Insights.